going to be in James chapter 1. Okay, so the last time we finished up the book of Revelation, and today we're starting the book of James. James has been called, among other things, the Proverbs of the New Testament. So we're going to start Proverbs again. That makes Dave happy. He likes the Proverbs. But we're going to start with actually chapter 10 in Proverbs because I'm looking for the, you know, the one verse Proverbs, um, just some pithy Proverbs, and you know, we'll just understand what God's trying to tell us in that, and then we'll move towards our, our main study. So if you would, turn to Proverbs 10, verse 1. The Proverbs of Solomon, a wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish son is the grief of his mother. A wise son makes a glad, certainly earthly father, and a wise son, a godly son, makes his heavenly father also happy, as well as his mother. But it says that a foolish son is the grief of his mother. Well, I've dealt with troubled families for many years, and I've often seen troubled children, you know, teens and young adults. And, um, you know, what I've often seen is when the rest of the family gives up on the kid, the moms are usually still in the trenches. And usually, again, to my uh, knowledge and my experience, the moms take it the hardest. And again, even if everyone else has given up on this child, the mom still sees a glimmer of hope. So it's amazing how we can just blow through God's word, I say this all the time, or we can really see what God is trying to say. Why is a wise son make the father glad, but the foolish son is the grief of his mother? Because it's just the way God has made us different. Uh, mothers bring something to the table, and so do fathers. I was watching this show on, uh, and everything's on TV now, parole boards. They have the cameras in there, and you, know, the, it's, it's, you would think it was boring, but it's actually very interesting. And when the, the guy could be 40 years old, 45, and he's up for parole, who's there supporting him? Usually the mom. She may be elderly, she may be in a wheelchair, but mom is there supporting her son and giving him that, that strength. So it's an interesting thing to look at. Okay, this Sunday is going to start the first chapter in the book of James. And as always, before we go into a book, I like to give you background. What is the book about? Who wrote it? Where did they write it from? And it kind of gives you some insight. So as we go through the book, it makes more sense and it comes alive more. Who wrote it? Well, there were several James in the Bible. And actually, I've counted about six or seven James that I know of in our fellowship. It was a popular name back then, and it's a popular name today. Uh, back in the Hebrew, the name was Jacob or Jacob. In the Greek, it's translated to Iakobos, and that translates over to James. So the Jacob in the Old Testament is really the James in the New Testament. The author was understood as Jesus' brother, and as we stated Resurrection Sunday, that James, remember, G Jesus was a miraculous birth. And then afterwards, Joseph and Mary, you know, as, as a married couple, had other children. So Jesus was the older brother, but a half-brother to the other brothers and sisters that, you know, happened after him. But a lot of times in the Scripture, and, and we'll cover this in the Gospel of John and the different Gospels, it, they're just small snippets in the scripture, but Jesus' own family at times thought he had delusions of grandeur. I'm the Messiah, you know, look at me. And they were like, well, what's with this guy? We grew up with him. He was always a good kid, never did anything wrong, but, you know, we're not going to take it that far. But it wasn't until Jesus was resurrected that his own family really say, wow, yeah, I guess he is God. You know, he said he was going to rise again. And that, that really did it for them. And it, it changed their whole outlook and it changed their whole behavior. And James... 
became a very strong Christian after the, re the resurrected Christ, his, his half-brother on the earth. Who did he write it to? Who did James write this to and why? James wrote to a primarily Jewish audience, Jewish believers outside of what was known as the Palestine area at the time. And uh, the church, remember, was comprised mostly of Jewish people. And I have to laugh at, you know, if somebody says, repeats a lie enough times, others will start to believe it. Well, today, if you're Jewish, you can't believe in Jesus. Well, that's absurd because the Messiah was Jewish and the early church was Jewish. The whole thing about Gentiles was actually balked at for a while until the Lord made it clear to them, you've got to bring Gentiles into the fold. So primarily Jewish believers, um, we actually have several Jewish believers in our own fellowship, and that's a blessing for a church our size. But James was looking to address specific problems that the Jewish believers were facing, and his style was more of a type of condensed version of Jesus' sermons in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. What's the application today? Well, Warren Wearsby, who I like because he's very uh, concise regarding his understanding of the scriptures, he says it's a call for maturity, for immature Christians. Warren Wearsby believed, even in his day, that spiritual immaturity is the number one problem of the church in his time. And I would say definitely it is probably one of the biggest problems of the Western church today. See, when you go to Africa, you know, Shari was reading those things, or you go to Asia, or you go to some of these uh, countries, uh, well, Africa's a continent, I don't get caught in that. But if you go to some of these countries and areas over across the seas, and in some areas they're hostile to Christianity, for you to say, I'm a believer, there's a cost associated to that. Okay? There's a cost associated to that. So those who say, I'm a Christian, in hostile nations, those are the real deal. Because, because they actually have to live out their faith every day. And there's certainly no doubt something in here that all of us can look at and see ourselves lacking, as always in God's Word. doesn't matter who the letter was written to. We today, believers, 2,000 years later, can look at these words and say, gee, that affects me too. Because humans really haven't changed over the years. It's just a different culture, different time period, different geography, but we're still humans, right? So, when was it written? Well, this may be the earliest writing of the New Testament, somewhere between A.D., 46 and AD 49, where? Most likely from Jerusalem, James as a Jew and the head of the Jerusalem church writing to Jewish believers in foreign lands, certainly his uh, status would have carried weight with the Jewish audience. According to the historian Josephus, sadly, James suffered a violent martyr's death at the hands of the religious leaders in AD 62, uh, just a few years prior to the fall of Jerusalem. Okay, so we're going to jump in. James, verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greetings, or in the Greek the word is charein. The word charein, greetings, is only used in one other book, and that's Acts, where James was expressing himself during the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15. So there's just a lot of proof in the writing style, in the greetings used, why we know that this was the James, Jesus' half-brother. So he says right off the bat, a servant. We can look at that quickly too. But there's different words for servant in the scripture. One word is diakonos, where we get the word deacon from. Deacons are servants in the church. It's funny, people want to be deacons and elders and pastors, but the senior pastor is really supposed to be the head servant. <laughs> there should be never a point where the senior pastor says, I don't have to do anything anymore. 
because we are servants as leaders in the church. Unfortunately, many in Christendom have taken that in the other direction, which is wrong. But James says, I'm not a diakonos, I'm a doulos, different Greek word. And that word means a bondservant or a slave. It's a very strong meaning here, and it sets the tone for the rest of the book. You see, James isn't playing pop preacher in this book. He's not into the pop preacher scene. He's going to give strong solutions for strong problems, and his opening statement makes that clear. I wonder how many Christians would characterize themselves honestly as a servant of God, a servant of Christ, a bondservant, a slave. Does he own me? Is Jesus truly my Lord? Now, some would say, especially if you go out into the world, you see your family, you see your coworkers, your neighbors, they may say, you know, you're, you're being a little fundamental, you're taking this thing too far. Well, there is a balance, see? We're not to be offensive, we're to love folks, but we're to make it clear that we serve one master, and that's Jesus Christ, our Lord. He is our master. He says to the 12 tribes scattered, the scattering of the tribes, um, if you look at Israel's history, right around 722 BC, the Assyrians invaded Israel, sovereign Israel, and they started expatriating the citizens, sending them out to Assyria, uh, bringing their people in, trying to dilute really the Jewish uh, identity. And then successive pagans would take over, you know, the Persians and the Greeks and the Romans, and they would also have dominion and control over the Jews. And you saw a lot of this happening. But James can send this letter out to the 12 scattered tribes, knowing where they are. Lost tribes of Israel, we've heard that, haven't we? The lost tribes of Israel, that's, that's a misnomer also. There are no lost tribes. God didn't lose any of his people. As a matter of fact, in the book of Revelation, there'll be a point in time where God will seal 12,000 from each tribe, and they'll be identified as that particular tribe, and he'll send them out. And this is, again, our future, but we covered that in the book of Revelation. Scattered. The Greek word is diaspora, and it literally means to sow across or a seeding. What do seeds produce when they're full grown? They produce fruit, right? Their scattering in trials produced, well, produce. And this is what happened with these folks. Many believing Jews were scattered over the known world and bore fruit for God's kingdom. And often it was as a result of the trials they faced. Sometimes we look at a trial and we don't see the opportunity in the trial. The Jews were scattered. And a lot of the Jews brought monotheism, one God, to pagan lands, right? The whole thing with the uh, Septuagint, circa 2nd, 3rd century BC, uh, translation of all the Hebrew Old Testament into the Greek. Why? To show the Greek polytheists who were worshiping false gods, this is the God that we serve. This is the one true monotheistic God. So even in their trials and tribulations, it, brought, it bore fruit for God's kingdom. Now we're going to jump heavy into this. Verse 2, James says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So James says, <clears throat> count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Yeah, 
That's our natural reaction, isn't it? You with me this morning? <clears throat> Maybe not. How many respond with joy when they look at and their bills are more <laughs> than what they're bringing in? How many people respond with joy when the doctor tells them there's something wrong with you and you need an operation? Or there's an issue with your kids or an issue with your marriage or a temptation that you're overwhelmed with. Count it all joy. What is he talking about? But do we use that as an opportunity? Do we use those trials as an opportunity? And, and we're going to see what James speaks about here. The word for trials is parasmas, which literally means, and I'm going to start taking apart these words so you really get a, a rich meaning of what's being said here. Trials, parasmas. It means this, putting to proof by experiment, by testing, and sometimes temptation. That word is used contextually. Sometimes it means uh, temptation. Sometimes it means trials. However, a strong temptation can be a trial. Right? What James is telling us is that trials have a purpose. And he goes into the process of what they do. Verse 3, here's the process. It starts with the testing or the trying of faith. The word for testing literally means a testing to reveal trustworthiness, to be approved. So this testing has a purpose. And it was used in those days in, the, in metallurgy, in the, um, you know, the extrusion of, of certain things from the ore and all that kind of stuff. And just as metal, the metal chose became either more pure by boiling it, right, and getting the impurities out of it and then boiling it again and removing the dross, or hardening it, different type of metal, where you're trying to forge a metal to make it strong. It's the same thing with faith. See, it's so cool because James uses these word pictures, and Jesus did this too. He used very simple things that the folks would be familiar with in that society, and he made a spiritual truth out of it. Parabole, parable, it literally, literally means to cast alongside. So you take your physical thing that everybody can understand and make a spiritual truth there. So our faith is also can be purified and tested. It produces one, patience. What's patience? Endurance or perseverance. Sometimes, by our own admissions, patience is something that we lack, isn't it? You know, I can get the love thing and the joy thing, but man, that patience thing, ugh, that's a hard one. If you ever watch a prize fighter, you know, they're just going at it. I don't know how they lift their arms anymore. The prize fighter or the marathon runner. That's something, you, you can keep that. Uh, 26 miles, 30 miles, whatever they're running. They, they go the distance, although they feel, and they're interviewed afterwards, they just feel like they want to die or they want to give up, but they keep going. Now, I'm going to be a little bit more explicit here. I've seen some races with these marathon runners. They're just sweating from head to toe. Their head is wet. Their hair is wet. And they have these little shorts. And as they're running, sometimes things fall out of the shorts. And what happens is their bowels let loose. They, they urinate and they defecate and it just hits the road and they keep going because their bodies are saying, stop, we're exhausted. And their will is indomitable. Their will says, no, we're going to keep going. You ever, you ever see that? Anybody see that with those runners? It's amazing how they, they just keep going. And we must endure it. The, the, the races are impressive, but even, what's even more impressive as people of faith is when we see a Christian when we see somebody's faith that no matter what's hitting them or assaulting them, 
That will is to move on. Yes, I know God exists. I know he's going to make everything work out. And therefore, I'm going to keep going. That's impressive. Verse 4. A few things happen. It says you'll become perfect and um, perfect and complete. There's other uh, translations where it says perfect and entire. I think that's better. And I'll tell you why. Don't miss this. James is telling us this is the result. Two things. One is qualitative and one is quantitative. One is qualitative, perfect, meaning the quality of it is complete, mature, and moral character. That's the result. And quantitative, entire, the whole part of you, you're entire, you're sound, okay? You're complete, solid. Man, that Christian is solid. That Christian is the real deal. Every, people can say that they're Christians, and I believe in the United States, people have fishes on their cars and you know, hanging crosses and all that kind of stuff, and that's great. But what happens if tomorrow the government said Christianity is illegal? You will be persecuted, you'll be thrown in jail. I wonder how many fishes would come off the back bumpers, right? Or how many crosses would be hidden underneath their shirt? You never know. Happens in other countries. And I just want to give you a warning with this chapter. Be careful. Be careful when you admire another Christian who's strong and you say, I want to be like that brother or I want to be like that sister. You may ask God to be like them and next week everything crashes down around you and your whole life is falling apart and you say, Lord, what are you doing to me? And his response would be, I'm just answering your prayer. This is how we do it, <laughs> right? This is the, sounds crazy, doesn't it? This is the prayer, you're laughing because those of you who are laughing who've been through what I'm talking to and I've been there too. This is the process the process, I keep saying that, what makes you a strong believer. You may ask, is there any other way? I've had that conversation with the Lord before. Can we do this another way? This is kind of hard, you know what I'm saying? You know, could you just kind of attenuate it a little bit? You know, help me out here. But similar to the metallurgic process, there is no other way, okay? How do you take gold out of ore? You heat it up. The gold's got to melt out, and it's got to be collected, Right? If you were the gold, you'd be like, oh, I was comfortable in this ore. What's going on here? So the gold is co collected, you know, in pails or whatever. And then what they do is they um, put it in crucibles and they heat it up again. And you've heard this expression. I mean, those of you who've been Christians for a while have heard this process. But this is what the Greek word implies. I think the word is dokimion. So what happens is this was a word specifically used for that time period, the way they dealt with metals. Then they would take all the gold that was extruded and heat it up again. And for whatever reason, the dross would come to the top. Then they'd scoop it up with a label, discard it, and then heat it up again. Now again, if you're the gold, you know, you were just finding that ore, and then all of a sudden somebody's messing with you. But in the end, that gold is perfect, pure, beautiful, and it can be used for a variety of applications, which it couldn't when it was in the ore. Same thing with uh, maybe a harder metal. A harder metal is heated up, and then it's hammered. Boom, boom, boom. You know, if that metal was just fine where it was until somebody had to start messing with it. They take it out, they're red hot, and they start hammering it. And then what do they do? They stretch it, they, they bend it, they heat it up again, and then they hammer it again. Sound familiar? <laughs> Some of you have been hammered and stretched and pulled and poked, and, and this is what happens. But verse 4 says, it produces a faith lacking nothing. Now, that doesn't mean that we become flawless or sinless. We never arrive on this side of eternity. 
And anybody who tells you that is lying to you. But it means you're now ready to be used. And I've used this example. Put my name, your name in there. You say, Lord, I want to be a Bible teacher. Lord, I want to serve you. Lord, I want to be a missionary. Hey, no problem. He takes you in his hand, and he looks at Joe DeProsimo. He's got some potential. I see some problems, though, that have to get, be gotten rid of. And he takes out that handy chisel and the mallet, and he's like, boom, boom, boom. Ah, that's got to come off. Boom, boom, boom. You know what I'm saying? He takes that mallet, and he takes that chisel, and he removes the things that are a part of you that he cannot use. Then he looks at you and goes, hmm, starting to look better. I can use this. He's now ready to be used. Other applications, even any, any pastor, to, you know, don't lay a hands on a pastor or anybody too soon uh, because you don't know. You want to see how they can handle things. You want to see what happens when the temptations especially come. Unfortunately, in our environment and especially in our area, uh, in our country, a lot of pastors fall into sin. They're overwhelmed by the temptation. They don't, they don't measure up. They're not approved and they can't be used and they shelved. Look at police officers. You know, you can give any guy a badge and a gun and send him to the police academy. And then he comes out and he's got his own squad car. But it's not until the officer gets his first real encounter with a stressful situation do you get to see what the rookie is made of. I've seen that many a times. A lot of the rookies wash out in the training program and they give their gun and their badge back and they go, I'm going to find something else to do. I'm not interested in doing this anymore. And it doesn't mean that they're bad people. They just can't muster up to that that approve that process that trustworthiness in a sense and christian you will not you may not it could happen you will be tested and your defense is prayer your lifeline to god is prayer god's word to give you wisdom and negotiate through the difficulties and to have mature christians to help you through the trial and i stress that because if you surround yourself with immature Christians and you go through a trial, they're going to teach you how to cheat. They're going to help you take the shortcut. They're going to help you to compromise. And you know what? You're not going to come out any better than when you went through that trial. Compromise shortcuts don't work. Surround yourself with, more, with mature Christians, especially when you're going through these times. Okay, so now that I explained it, here's my question by a show of hands. Now, who wants to go through trials? Anybody? Raise your hands. Only a few? I guess I didn't do my job. I didn't make it enticing. Some today may be going through a a grievous trial, and others of you here, it's right around the corner. And the bad thing about trials is you can't see it on the radar screen. You don't know, incoming, bogeys, you know, 12 o'clock. You can't see it coming. It just comes, and bam, it whacks you. That's the most probably difficult thing about trials. You, don't, you can't even prepare for it. So some of you are saying, I hear you, I'm in the middle of it. And some are saying, eh, everything's fine. Wait till next week and talk to me, see what happens. <laughs> to some of you, do you think it's a coincidence that you're going through this subject matter today? Probably not. It's a few things that have been said about trials. Don't resent them as intruders. Welcome them as friends. Because the spiritual growth is the product. We can either run for the hills or trust God and see where he's going to take us. Now, trials come from different places. Um, You can look at sin and decay of the creation, of the body. You know, we're all going to head to the doctor's office at one time or the other, especially as we get older. We're going to find something wrong. We're going to find something unexpected. 
we're going to get a bad report about our bodies. All right, something's wrong with you, and we need to take drastic action. For some, it just may be uh, the decay of the creation, natural disaster. I, I knew somebody that got struck by lightning, and he never fully, thank God he's alive, but he never fully recovered. So, you know, for others, just happenings. For others, you're going to be unfortunate, the unfortunate victims of somebody else's sin. Some of you are going to get scammed, ripped off. Some of you are going to be victims of crime. You know, we hope that doesn't happen, but it's a result of someone else's sin and not necessarily yours. Some is satanic pressure, and I've seen it. Somebody stands up and says, I want to serve, and bam, the next week, it's just one assault after another. You don't know what's happened to me. And where, where, where's this coming from? I think I can pinpoint it. I've had that discussion. And some are self-generated, and these are the dopiest of all trials because it's just a result of bad decisions. You know, I do this every year. I went out into the sun yesterday and my whole back is red. So don't pat me on the back when you see me after service, please. Shake my hand, I'll appreciate that. And that was just a dumb decision on my part. I didn't sleep well, I was hot, uh, you know, my air conditioning's not working, so it was the perfect storm. And here I am this morning. But bad decisions on my part. Didn't prepare, didn't do the right thing, didn't use my head. So those are the, 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 the dopiest of all of them. But Satan's desire is to destroy us with these. But God allows them, and we're going to talk next Sunday about where temptations come from and how to respond to them and when it actually becomes a sin. Okay, and a different subject. But God allows these trials to strengthen us. Verse 5, it says, If any of you lacks wisdom, ask for it. Ask God for that wisdom. Now, that's something that we should all be asking for because it applies to all facets of our lives. You can have facts and knowledge and still no wisdom. Wisdom is the ability to take all those bits and pieces of information and put them together and make them intelligible, make them work, you know, make them solve problems. That's what wisdom is. Certainly, wisdom is needed when you're facing trials. It's no, it's, he didn't just change the subject here. It's all kind of related, all right, what James is talking about. Verse 5, he says that God is just basically waiting to shower us with wisdom. It's almost as if God has this big warehouse, storehouse of wisdom. And Jesus has often said, you have not because ye ask not. What are we asking for in our prayer life? Things that just make us comfortable? I'll tell you what, it's applicable in any line of work and with any, any idea, but the one thing I always pray for before I counsel someone is wisdom. All right, Lord, I'm dealing, with, <laughs> I'm dealing with somebody else's problems. It's not my problem, but the goal is to make them better after the counseling session and not worse. Help me not to mess them up. Give me wisdom, Lord. Help me to have insight and see something that they're not seeing as they go through this. So wisdom is very important. Some may quickly run to ask a pastor or an elder. Quickly, as soon as something happens. Pray for me. That's good. But they may say, how do you get me out of this problem? How do you help me out of it? Again, prayer should come first. And even prayer for the person that you're asking counsel for. See, did you ever think of that? If you go to someone, it was a, a, a couple with a, a marital is, issue, and the person and I were talking about helping their marriage along. And uh, we kind of had an idea, uh, but after prayer and after some time of, of not actually talking, I spoke with the person again, and at the same time, we both said, you know what, that's not a good idea. It's like in that interim period, the Lord spoke with me, and the Lord spoke to that person, and we both came up with the same idea that, you know, that's not, that's not a good way to handle it. So 
Pray for the person that you're asking counsel from. I, I'm going to go to so-and-so. I'm going to go to Elder Vinny next week. Well, in that week, ask, Lord, help to give Vinny an incredible amount of wisdom so when we speak, he can help me through this situation. It's very important. And verse 6, if we ask anything in prayer, well, it must be asked in faith, or it's really insulting to God. Can we insult him? Absolutely. You know, Hebrews 11.6 basically tells us that without faith, it is impossible to please God, to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, first of all, and that he is a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. It's a two-pronged test. If you don't believe that God is, what's the sense in praying? And, and that's a religious thing that people do. They go through the motions. They don't necessarily believe he's there or not, but it's just something that everybody else does. So the first thing is believe that God is, and two, we need to believe that God is a rewarder. He gives rewards to those who diligently seek him. The Bible says all throughout the scripture, it says, if you seek me with your whole heart, you will be found by me. And God always keeps his promises. James uses the wave and the sea and the winds. And uh, back then, especially if you were in uh, the fishing community, if you were in uh, trade, um, they didn't have the type of boats and the heavy you know, liners that we have now that could take a little bit of the beating and be okay. Uh, when these guys went into a storm, man, they got tossed around. And it's like when men were men back then. If you were a fisherman and you were caught on these things and you survived, man, you had some pretty good talent. I mean, they'd go up the mass and move the sails and you just get battered and, and, and blistered with those winds. So he, he gives a little bit of a word picture here, and I like the way James does that. But he says the double-minded. He uses this word double-minded. The double-minded is the one who kind of is wishy-washy. Well, I, yeah, all right, God, but eh, I'm not really sure God's going to do it. And just really wishy-washy about their faith, kind of going here and then going there. And the word for double-minded in the Greek is actually dipasukas, which literally means two minds. It's tough enough having one mind with all its diverse characteristics, but imagine having two minds. The shepherd's notes that I was reading says the double-minded, his impression of the double-minded is like a walking civil war. And I, that just hit me. I was like, that's a good description. A walking civil war, you know, just constantly in turmoil, one side fighting against the other, fighting against the other. And that's what he's talking about. Two minds going back and forth. Now, this is different from the flesh and the spirit because you have the spirit, and you have your carnal desires. But with your one mind, you make a decision which one you're going to follow. The double-minded is completely unstable. Imagine having two presidents of the United States. And furthermore, each president is from a different political party. You'd never get anything done. I mean, it's bad enough Washington doesn't get things done now. But could you imagine two presidents of equal power of different political parties? This, this country would be in much worse shape than it is now. So Jesus often challenged folks to get off the fence when it comes to trusting God. You know, put all your eggs in one basket. Uh, you know, not, not trying to kind of hedge your bets all over the place. Just put all your resources, your energy, your time, your, your um, devotion into one. Put it into the Lord God. Verse 9. Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation, because as a flower of the field he will pass away. For no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat then it withers the grass, its flower falls, and its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits. Now, in those days, prior to the fall of Jerusalem, just prior, there was some class warfare, and we're going to talk about that a little bit later in the book. But I believe that he's really focusing on um, a humility aspect. Jesus always said that the proud will be humbled, 
and the humble will be exalted. In God's economy, things are reversed, usually from what we think. And what's happening here is that, is that I lost my place, so I have to look back down again. That's what's happening here, literally. Those that relied on their riches, okay, would not stand the test, but those that relied on God, on their spiritual treasures, would stand the test. And the word picture here is of a Sirocco. I'm not talking about the Volkswagen Sirocco, but a Sirocco was a really hot, scorching, brutal, assaulting desert wind that would come across, and anything in its path would be withered. So if you had some type of vegetation, a plant, like he's talking about, it would just wither. It would just get abused by this Sirocco and just wither it up and dry it up. And the, the scripture is clear that it's not talking about all rich folks, but those whose pursuits were for their religious, riches and their reliance on them. So the question is, when we go through trials, again, this all is, is together with James's one, one thought here, is what do we trust in to get through our trials? Do we trust in our finances? Well, I'm going to be okay through this economy because I've diversified my portfolio. I've got some here and some there and some in gold and all this kind of stuff. Is that going to get us through our trials? No, there's some trials that your money and your savings aren't going to do anything for you. What about my connections? Well, I'm political in the town. I know I've been in this town for a long time. I know the mayor and I know the council and I'm going to be fine, really. What about personalities? Well, I'm a good talker. You know, I think I could talk my way out of a paper bag. So whatever comes through, I'm, I'm going to get through it. Or is it God? Well, the answer is D, it's God. Because anything else, you, you may run into a trial that all your ideas and your connections and your schemes won't have an effect on this particular trial. So it's always got to be focused on the Lord. Verse 12. Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been proved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Now, verse 12 is a bridge to next Sunday's study. So I'm going to leave it there. But this is, this is the nexus here. Uh, it applies to what we just covered, and it's going to apply to what we cover next Sunday. Um, the person is blessed who endures the testing and the temptation, and that person trusts God through the temptation and the testing, and that person will prevail, right? And in verse 3, it's the same word here, this testing that reveals trustworthiness. You go through it in this way, and there's a trustworthiness. There's an approved nature. There's a forging. There's a hardening, right? There's a strengthening. The reward is the crown of life. Now, we've often heard this expression, no cross, no crown. I've seen bumper stickers, and it's true. Jesus went through this amazing, and here's where the gospel message is. Jesus was, sure, very comfortable in heaven, in eternity, being divine. And the plan was that he was going to go take the form of a human, fully God and fully man, walk the earth, grow up in a very hostile, hostile environment, and, it, you know, he did the miracles, he did the teachings, and that was good, but it wasn't complete without him willingly going to the cross, shedding his blood for the remission of our sins, right? And he's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He literally humbled himself to become a man, to be abused, and he didn't have to be, to shed his blood on that cross, to die for our sins, and he, he rose again like he said he would and is seated at the right hand of the Father. No cross, no crown. And in a sense, we model that uh, because we always try to model what Jesus does. Not that we can die for anyone's sin, but some of us have to bear our own crosses. Jesus says to bear our crosses, right? No cross, no crown. 
James uses the word crown in the Greek is Stephanos. There's diadem, diademos, and Stephanos. Now, this word that James used, the crown of life, the Stephanos, this was a, really a victor's wreath. Uh, if you were in the Olympic Games, you would see the, the runners or the, whatever the person was doing. When they would come out in first place or, or whatever uh, they would place, they would get this the Stephanos, this victor's wreath, sort of to our Olympics where they would get the gold, the bronze, the silver, right? And this was used to illustrate, again, people could understand it. Oh, yeah, the Olympics, we, we know what that is. Yeah, we're going to get the crown of life. Yeah, but it's more than that. Those who endure with the Lord until the end have many spiritual crowns and rewards in heaven. It's a good picture on the earth, but in eternity, there's going to be different crowns. So my question is today, how many here, you don't have to raise your hand, have gone through grievous trials? And then... <laughs> And then the other question is, how many of you are still alive? Hopefully all of you. <laughs> Please. And some of you have the scars to prove it. Some of you have the scars to prove that you've gone through these trials. But if you'll admit, as I'll admit, when you look back, as we get through these trials, it's honed our spiritual character. It's, it's done great things with our spiritual character, and it was necessary. This study is really the Rocky theme to the trials we face with all the vicissitudes of life, right? Remember Rocky? Dun, 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 you know? I'm not going to do it. I did it. Um, <laughs> but this is the Rocky theme. You're going through your trials. This is the scripture that you need to be reading because it really puts it all in perspective. This is the scripture that should get us psyched when we're going through these trials of life. I believe that we can all look back at the trials, and if we're honest, I don't want to go through mine again but it has honed and strengthened our spiritual character. I remember one night, some time ago, that I just was so discouraged. <laughs> just want to show you that I'm, I'm like you, I'm human. I was so, dis everything was going wrong. And I was coming home from work, and uh, I came home, and uh, I was just like, you know what, Lord? It just was complaining. I was just being a baby. And I took a big piece of paper, and I wrote magic marker, to God, I quit from Joe. <laughs> And I put it on the kitchen table and I went to bed. My wife wakes up and goes, what's this? <laughs> you know? But the next morning, I found that the Lord did not accept my resignation and neither did my wife. And I, I love to talk to the guys who've been pastors for like a long time, 20 years and stuff, and still they're human beings. You know, one pastor that I look up to, in, uh, I see him every once in a while in, in Miami, Pastor Vasquez. And he says, I love to teach on God's word. I can teach on trials. I can teach on this. He goes, but sometimes God says, um, Raz, now we're going to walk you through it. You're going to go through it. You're not just going to teach on it. And he's like, well, I was just comfortable. You know, I could teach on this. I don't really need to go through it. And he says, God brings him through those trials, whatever he's teaching on. So taking it all together, if you look at your tools, I want to encourage you today. Here's your tools. Number one, stay in the word. Definitely stay in prayer, Right? Ask for wisdom. Lord, I just need wisdom. Help me to glorify you, God. You know, it's not all about me. It's all about how I do and how I look to other folks so I can glorify you and shine that light. Be humble. And don't doubt God will work all things together for those who love him, like the scripture says. Also knowing that, understand this, that God doesn't necessarily take the trial away from us. It's not, it's 90% done, like your computer. It's downloaded 90%, and you're like, I just can't take the last 10%. He's not always going to take away that last 10%.
what his objective may be is to say, you're going to go through it, but I'm holding you. I'm with you. I got you. I'm not going to let you go. And sometimes he'll take the trials away, but sometimes he'll say, we have to go through this together, and he's going to bring you through it and take you out on the other side. Let's pray.